Hey everyone, welcome to the 75th episode of the Liam McCollum Show. I have my roommate Ethan Holmes on the podcast. It's kind of actually a funny situation we have going on. I'm in the basement and he's upstairs. We just didn't really know how to handle the camera situation. So we're just going to do it this way. Um, but yeah, I've had Ethan on the show before and I recommend everyone go check out that podcast. We did a discussion just about altruistic libertarianism, Dostoevsky and Russia. And I think it's a very interesting conversation. Um, but today I'm inviting him on to talk about the Russia-Ukraine situation and kind of give the perspective that maybe the U.S. media and the Pentagon aren't really sharing with us. Um, so I'm going to bring him in the studio right now. Hey, How are you Leo? doing, man? Excellent. And yourself? Good. If you just want to introduce yourself for people who haven't watched that previous episode, um, please do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me on, Liam. Um, it was a pleasure to be on the first time. I do recommend people uh, take a listen to that episode uh, whenever they get a chance. And it's great to uh, to be back on again today, uh, especially amid the the very newsy situation revolving around Russia and Ukraine at the moment. And uh, a little bit of background on myself and why uh, I believe, and Liam thinks I, I have an interesting perspective to give on this, is because my background is in Russian and political science. Um, so I'm very, very familiar with the language, history, culture, literature, music uh, of, of Russia and the Russian influence sphere of the world, you know, the post-Soviet sphere, whatever you want to call it. Um, I've personally been there. I spent uh, a winter in the middle of Siberia, which was a wonderful experience. Um, it's definitely informed uh, my opinions and my worldview to this very day. And I, I currently work as a news writer and reporter for Sputnik Newswire, uh, which is a Russia-based news service. Um, so I'm constantly doing stories, checking in um, on the beat for, for Russia in the post-Soviet sphere. Um, and so whenever it pops up uh, into the public consciousness, like it has now, um, I always love to uh, engage with people about it because a lot of people are being thrown into this very complex situation uh, with very little background knowledge about the whole thing, with very little broader understanding uh, of the situation at play. And so uh, this is a great opportunity to uh, to reach some ears that us, uh, you know, Russia specialists may not normally and give a perspective that's maybe outside of the traditional CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, uh, public relations, industrial complex talking points uh, that you hear out of the government and media. So. Uh, we can jump in in a number of points, but I'll let you kind of lead uh, lead us here. Yeah, I think you you're very immersed in this world, just with your reporting and everything like that. And I mean, when I'm here during the day, I, I can hear you listening to the Pentagon and and all of these meetings that are happening. Um, and unfortunately, because school just started and and the semester is just now happening, I haven't been able to, um, or the semester just now starting, I haven't been able to pay attention to it as much as I would originally. Um, so I really don't know where to start, but I also don't know exactly what's going on right now. So if you want to just start wherever you think is best to start and then um, catch us up. That would be awesome. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate the, the freedom to kind of dive in where I'd like. Um, and I, I have to apologize for making you also have to listen to the uh, the Pentagon, the State Department, uh, all those lovely people in the Biden administration. But uh, someone has to do it, right? Someone has to, <laughs> to write up what these people are saying and, and give some broader context and background. I think an important place to start um, in this discussion about Russia and Ukraine is just trying to establish 
where both sides stand right now. And then maybe we can take a step back um, and jump to how they got into those current positions. But to try and give as, as fair and objective and neutral of an assessment of the situation as I can, uh, essentially we're in a, a good old fashioned standoff uh, over Ukraine. So what does that mean? Russia has um, pretty much admittedly amassed uh, a large number of troops on its uh, Western border with Ukraine. They've also amassed a fair amount of troops in allied Belarus, uh, which also neighbors Ukraine to the north. Uh, the assessments I've seen place it well over 100,000. I think it's 120, 130, 140,000 at this point. Um, it's hard to tell exactly, but that's the reporting that's been out there based on, I'd assume, satellite imagery and the like. And on the other side of the border uh, from these amassed Russian and Belarusian troops uh, is Ukraine. And Ukraine has always kind of had a contentious history ever since it's a number of foundings as an independent state um, and territory. And Ukraine is, as it would appear, backed by the West, backed by uh, the allied NATO forces, backed uh, by the Western powers in general. So many people may have a misconception in this whole thing that we are coming to the defense, we being the West, um, an American, of course, coming to Ukraine uh, because they are a NATO allied country. And that's that's not actually the case. That is a, a, an easy uh, mistake to make, but Ukraine is not a NATO allied country. And in fact, that's a big part of the equation in the Russia-Ukraine standoff. But the reason why Russia and the West is interested in Ukraine is, one, it is a border to a main geopolitical rival in Russia. Um, it is a state for which they have democratic aspirations, which they would like to bring into the, the, the Western, the European, the transatlantic sphere. Um, and jumping back to the Russian perspective on that, that's worrying to them. Uh, Russia sees NATO expansion and encroachment on their Western borders as they kind of swallowed up the um, the former Soviet bloc there in Central and Eastern Europe. Um, and, and they're just worried as Western forces, military bases, missiles can be placed closer and closer to their own borders, um, oftentimes in territories which they once considered their own or at least they had uh, governmental authority over. And so to kind of wrap it all up, I know that was kind of long-winded and scattered. Uh, we have one side, Russia, who doesn't want NATO and the West close to its borders. We have the other side, NATO and the West, who wants to uh, maintain the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine and are doing that because they would like to bring Ukraine closer into their geopolitical sphere, into the Western democratic fold. And both sides are firm in their resolve to achieve their ends. And that's why we are where we are now with um, a large amount of troops on the Russian side sitting there, seemingly prepared to mobilize and deploy at any moment, and Western forces pouring, surging into allied NATO countries um, in and around Ukraine, um, the the sending of weapons and other uh, defensive aid to Ukraine by, the, by Canada, US, Germany, the like. Uh, that's the best, in a nutshell, 30,000 feet I can give to dive into. Uh, but what I'd be curious, as someone who is so immersed in this situation, is maybe what sort of questions come up about the whole Russia-Ukraine situation uh, to a Western mind? Because it can often, once again, uh, with people just jumping into this for often the first time in their life as an in-depth issue, what what doesn't make sense about the situation? Because our diplomats, frankly, are probably in a similar situation of not understanding the Russian side. The Russian side is probably having some level of difficulty understanding the Western side. Um, and we're stuck here as civilians in the middle trying to figure it out ourselves. Yeah. And 
I think from my perspective, it, it, what it has really seemed like over the last few weeks is we almost take a step back in de-escalation um, by one degree one week, and then we escalate by two degrees the following week. That's, that's how it seems, at least in the way that the media is portraying the situation and, and kind of the aggressiveness behind the press. And it, something that I found very interesting was um, the UK – I think it was maybe last week they reported that Russia was going to um, I think they were they were reported that Russia was going to move troops on the border. And then the White House responded to this like unfounded report. It was just it was just they the BBC said something and the White House felt so strongly that they had to come out aggressive against it. And they always use language like we're going to move swiftly and we're going to um, use sanctions and and it, it's extremely aggressive um, and and what it has looked like to me is you know we we go through these um, diplomatic talks between Putin and and Biden and then the next week it's like everything was lost so um, can you maybe explain what it's been like between Putin and Biden and the interactions between the two countries because from from my perspective, it, it it does seem, especially over the last week, that you know it it's been admitted that um, Ukraine doesn't see it nearly as close as as the United States does. They they think they don't think it's as dire of a situation as as we do. Um, so can you kind of explain kind of the the politics that are going on right now? Yeah, I would love to. That's a, that's a great question, a great way to kind of dive into some of the nitty gritty nuance of this topic. Before diving into Biden and Putin as uh, personal individual leaders who have a specific relationship between them, uh, I do want to address that that contradiction about de-escalatory uh, actions and escalatory actions and the rhetoric behind it, because there does seem to be a performative contradiction or some form of, of hypocrisy going on, especially when the U.S. calls for Russia to de-escalate, to move troops away from the Ukrainian border. Granted, troops that are on their own territory, that is the standard Russian defense is every country is allowed to move troops around their own legal territory as they see fit. Um, in the case of Belarus, if they're allowed by permission of the country to do joint exercises or whatever, you know, there, there's no violations of international law there. Um, but it's seen as an escalatory action, you know, amassing 100K plus troops. It's hard not to see that as some sort of escalatory action. Um, however, while the U.S. is calling for Russia to move troops on its own territory further into its own territory, they are at the same time seemingly escalating the situation, doing what they call bolstering NATO force posture on the eastern flank and sending a bunch of, of troops, forces, weapons um, closer and closer to Russia. So as they're asking Russia to move back from Ukraine, they themselves are moving towards Ukraine. And that's the exact opposite of what Russia wants. In fact, the State Department, White House, Defense Department are all pretty candid about the fact that they think Putin is essentially asking for it. They say the last thing Putin wants is further NATO expansion, further NATO presence on his borders, further unity of the NATO alliance. But all he's doing by amassing these troops is causing further NATO unity, NATO action, NATO presence closer and closer to his borders. Um, and, and so, you know, you, you could frame that almost as, as victim blaming. But of course, uh, geopolitics is, is far more complicated and nuanced than that. Once again, um, it's, it's hard, especially as Ukrainian, I'd imagine, or as a member of NATO, not to view 
one of the largest assemblies of, of Ru the Russian armed forces and, and post-Soviet history as anything but a potential threat. But at the same time, this seems to be, and it, it kind of baffles me, the inability for many people in the United States, in these Western countries, to, to place themselves into the position of Russia, purely as like a, a neutral third party uh, realist observer. You have forces encroaching closer and closer to your border, uh, an alliance that was your main geopolitical rival, expanding, expanding closer. And it's, I would understand from their perspective of their leadership and government, why that would be a negative situation. But here's really the kind of bonkers thing to me, Liam, is that not many people know Putin was open to Russia joining NATO back when he was first president. So Putin became president kind of symbolically almost right at the turn of the millennium there in 2000. And in those early years, you know, while Bill Clinton was still president at the time, actually, they had a meeting and they they pitched the idea of joining the NATO alliance of, you know, the Cold War's over, you know, the USSR has collapsed. We're here looking for a new future. What if we made our rival security packs into a, a singular one. And as, as it reportedly goes, Clinton himself was, was relatively open to the idea. He didn't see why that couldn't be a possibility, but all of his advisors around him pretty much shat their pants at the idea uh, because they lose they lose a, uh, a rhetorical scapegoat in many senses. They lose someone just to view as, as a healthy competitor in the region. Um, they don't want someone usurping the point of the alliance, I'd imagine. There are, there are genuine criticisms criticisms to be made, but it's, it's kind of bonkers to see where we are now, knowing that it was very much on the table for NATO to be a cooperative, integrated member of this European security alliance. And they were rather specifically excluded from it while all of their former allies and friends are uh, are, are slowly drifting towards that that same alliance that they uh, were, were kind of laughed out of moving on to putin and biden and then we can we can kind of take it from there um i don't have as so much to say about biden as i do about putin um and the one thing that i always tell people to think about when thinking about putin and his political maneuvering and strategizing is that putin is highly 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 influenced by not only the martial art of judo but the philosophy behind the martial art he's an active practitioner he has been for a long time and the art of judo is very very well suited to the current russian geopolitical situation judo as a martial art was designed from its from its fundamentals for a smaller, weaker, you know, slower opponent to take down someone bigger, faster, and stronger, uh, to use momentum and leverage and weight and mechanics uh, to their maximum so that you may defeat someone who is the superpower, let's say, in the world. So as a fallen power, someone who went from this uh, this bipolar world order in which they're an equal superpower competitor to the US to a, a fallen kind of second tier competitor, you would understand why judo is so useful there. And what judo does to use that momentum and leverage to its advantage is it tries to provoke attacks. It tries to provoke missteps, trip ups. And so in many ways, and Putin has done this before, this isn't the first troop buildup, it's just one of the largest. He moves a lot of troops there. And as I would analyze it, it's to try and just assess what the Western response is. If the Western response is non-existent, 
well, then it was just kind of wasted energy and logistics to move all those troops around. But if they can get the West to misstep, to overreact, to to put their center of gravity beyond where it should be, that's where Russia then can use a lot of their leverage and momentum against them as the smaller foe up against a much larger force in power. And so we can always get back to this. I love talking about martial arts. I love talking about Putin. So talking about Putin and his affinity for martial arts is, is a great time for me. But just think about everything Putin does through the lens of a judo practitioner. Right now, he's taking a step forward and, and pushing forward on the chests of the West in hopes that the West charges back forward so he can so he can flip him over um, when when he comes on too aggressive. And so, if I were a Western diplomat, I would I would try and view it through this lens as well and realize the most dangerous thing the U.S. and the West could do. Is kind of what they're doing and is over surging, over committing themselves to what could very well be nothing more than a feint. Yeah, on, on that martial arts point, um, everyone, I recommend everyone go check out your um, article. I, I link to it in, in the description about the cage is mightier than the sword, how you're advocating for uh, uh, leaders to actually get in the cage to uh, solve these these conflicts instead leaders, of leaders representatives whoever uh that's we can have that conversation uh maybe later but i do yeah. really think that uh I, I hate violence i hate you know particularly anything that's involuntary you know i'm kind of a libertarian at the core in that way but the fact that conflicts can be settled through a consensual violent fist fight i think says something i think maybe we can find a middle ground between just talking it out and actually fighting it out at war you know maybe we can just we can each send our best heavyweight to like battle it out in a neutral country and like settle it there whoever whoever walks out wins but that's kind of a far fetch you should always you should always kind of aim uh far beyond what you're actually willing to uh to receive yeah and and you made a very important point about um what what would we do if if russia was on our border right but like they were and we almost went to like nuclear war over it yeah cuban so, missile crisis people do forget about that yeah exactly and and it's very relevant i think because it's like we the United States sometimes forgets to put the shoe, you know, the other shoe on the foot, because it's like if if Russia was in Mexico, we would respond. We would probably threaten nuclear war over it. Absolutely. Um, we get hesitant enough when they're in Venezuela. That's close enough for our comfort. Right. Exactly. And I, I had more of a question about like um, what you think the Russian what, what does Russia want us to do, I guess, like you you were you were kind of explaining like they want us to misstep what are their interests when it comes to the united states then how do you how do you see their interests do how would they respond to a misstep and this is you know these these are always tricky questions and i should preface any analysis is is really speculation at the core um it's it's always really um, unsatisfying as someone in the news when a white house or state department or defense department official says no one can know what's going to happen except Putin himself. You know, no one can possibly actually know except the person who can pull the trigger on anything. And as much as I hate receiving that answer, I, I unfortunately have to give it to a certain degree in that no one really knows what the end goal of any of this mass maneuvering is, except a very limited number of people um, involved with the Kremlin. And, you know, frankly, it's kind of circling back to one of the earlier points here. It's all about trying to maintain their their current status not degrading further from superpower or regional status than they already have right because that's they're kind of this this currently fallen from grace status where we went from bipolar world order 
they're fallen. We're in this unipolar world order, end of history. You know, neoliberal democratic capitalism has won. You know, the, the United States way is there, right? And, and Russia, you know, under Yeltsin, almost looked like they would just, you know, cede to it. And then Putin flipped that around because this is another thing I, I really think Westerners should try and understand is how fucked the 90s were in in the post-Soviet sphere, you know, in Russia. The 90s were a a hellish time in that country. The economy had collapsed. You know, social capital uh, was at an all-time low. You know, the the average life expectancy plummeted, alcoholism, drug use, you know, it all. It it was an awful time. There's a reason why mobs filled the power vacuum, right? Mobs ran 1990s Russia in many senses. And that's why people weren't particularly happy with Yeltsin either. And we can get into the whole thing of, you know, the U.S. supporting Yeltsin arguably a little too much uh, in their their election. If we're going to talk about election meddling, you know, there were there were accusations in the 90s of the U.S. meddling with the uh, with with Yeltsin to, to keep him in power there. But Putin came along and in the eyes of many Russians uh, was a sort of savior figure from the chaos and the hellish nature of the post-Soviet 1990s. Um, he. You can argue with the means, but he somehow managed to get these oligarchs at least relatively under control. You know, the mob's not ravaging the country. He brought the economy back uh, at least above what it was in in the 90s when people were were in a relatively constant state of desperation. And and so when people ask, how could there, despite, you know, accusations of, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, poisonings and repression and, you know, his, his kind of social conservatism, which doesn't go well in the West. How could he be as popular as he at least appears to be in Russia? And the answer in large part is security and order and a something different from how bad the 1990s were for Russia. So for anyone who can't understand how Putin's in power and how he remains relatively popular, how he got here in the first place, just go and take a look at 1990s Russia. People, uh, if you've heard the Burt Kreischer, the machine story, they go, that's so exaggerated, like maybe there's some kernels of truth, but like, that's pretty out there. The Russians I've talked to and shown Burt Kreischer's the machine story, uh, they they confirmed that that would be totally in the reg, totally standard in the norm of uh, getting into shenanigans with, with a mob uh, on, on a Russian train. Um, but I, I did want to touch a little more about the world order situation because it gets add a couple things on the heart here. So yes, Russia just wants to stop NATO expansion because not, I hate the term Soviet revivalism. Every time I see it, I absolutely cringe on Twitter. And there's not aspirations to reform the Soviet Union under a communist party and all the central Asian states or whatever. But there is a very grounded and sensible interest for Russia from their perspective to try and maintain as much of a geopolitical sphere of influence as possible, right? Because China is kind of looking to become the new dominant competitor in this in this world order, right? Instead of, you know, a bipolar world order where the U.S. and USSR are competing, we're looking towards a world order where the U.S. and China are competing. And like Russia, you know, they're sad enough to be back to number two. They certainly didn't want to go down to number three, right, um, behind behind China. And so once again, we can get into the whole like China-Russia relationship. That's another facet. But on the world order, I think that the emergence of a unipolar world order, uh, the emergence of a U.S.-led world policing policy is one of the worst things that's ever happened to our country. Uh, Very frankly, it's been a massive waste of money, a massive uh, waste of American lives, uh, a massive waste of American political capital on the world stage. It's not served anyone but a very select few number of people well. 
And so as much as I'm a patriotic American, I love the U.S., it's because I love the U.S. that I think it's an absolute atrocity that we're spending so much time trying to police the world and trying to keep this number one superpower status where we try and make everyone the liberal democracy, uh, you know, enlightenment value inspired culture that the U.S. is. And frankly, that's never going to happen. We're never going to reach a unified world neoliberal order. Uh, you know, post-liberalism is here and, and it's going as well. It's, it's going to be gone here soon. And what I would hope for, for our sake and the sake of many others in the world for, for peace and prosperity is the emergence of a multipolar world order where, where countries can mind their own their own yards, right? Where they're not being the world police, where they, they're not having these aspirations of you know dominating the UN Security Council, of dominating the, the transatlantic sphere, the whole Western hemisphere, right? We've been warned by founding fathers. This is a point that many, many people have made for decades. Uh, we were warned not to go uh, abroad searching for monsters to slay. Uh, and that seems to be exactly what the Biden administration is doing here, frankly, is taking almost the bait, if we want to read it that way, of Putin, the judo bait, the feint there with the troop maneuvers, um, because they know, or rather they think that they can get the American populace, you know, who rang behind them for a war. But no one, no one, not Ukrainians, not Russians, not Americans, benefits from sending a bunch of people from the US, NATO allied countries to go and, and inflame and escalate a war in that region, right? It's from the perspective of what sort of world order, what sort of foreign policy saves the most lives. It's, it's not one in which we go to try and be the enforcer and arbiter of world justice. Now, that pains me to say, a lot of people are rightfully gonna go, well, what do you say to Ukrainians then who are facing this massive threat? What do you say to the people on the island of Taiwan whose existence is dependent on the US providing the sort of policing against a Chinese invasion? And it, it, it pains me because I don't have a great answer other than there are kinks that are gonna have to be worked out at one point or another. And I, I pray and I hope that they can be done so diplomatically. But it's an unsustainable situation for us right now, as unfortunate as that is. We, we've dug ourselves a hole that's going to be difficult to get out of. So if we truly want to retreat and be a non-interventionist power, if we want to uh, spur the emergence of a multipolar world order, we kind of have to say to Taiwan, I'm sorry, you know, what, what would happen happens you know to the people of ukraine you know this is this is a conflict that doesn't involve americans at what point historically and there's the the ukraine russia situation has been contentious for longer than just in recent years you know when did the u.s all of a sudden fit into this um we rightfully try and tell russia off um for accusations of meddling in elections and uh you know for for whatever else and we have a right to do that, but what we don't have a right to do is go into totally unrelated foreign zones and try and exert our view of what the world should be. Um, and maybe that's selfish of me. Maybe it's selfish to not want to send fellow Americans to go die in foreign countries because leaders generations ago sadly made these people a promise of protection. Um, I, I don't. I don't see myself as beholden to the neoconservative promises of decades past. I see myself beholden to future generations. And because of that, I want the peaceful, uh, the peaceful, the most peaceful world order we can, we can manage. And it's not going to emerge from current U.S. foreign policy. I'm wondering a little bit more about what you think kind of like the, the liberal order 
I guess what the liberal order perspective is towards Russia, because I, I was listening to a podcast. Uh, it was Scott Horton's appearance on um, Reed Coverdale's show. And and he was asking, like, there was kind of like this switch where, you know, the Romney Republicans were kind of hawks towards Russia um, in, in that election. And then all of a sudden there was this switch where uh, Obama started to be more of a hawk when when he was kind of mocking that strategy earlier um so do you think that like this hawkishness towards russia is built into kind of like this establishment of in in dc or or do you think um as as scott horton suggested that it's kind of more ideological and and they don't think that the liberal west like this um unipolar order can associate with some country that is like you know not politically correct is is kind of what uh, a hypothesis that he brought up. So Scott was talking about like the anti-gay propaganda bill that came out, um, how how the the almost the left in this country does not want to associate with a country that is so intolerant in in their eyes, which is which is like that's baffling to me only because Ukraine is not much different in those regards. In fact, you know, uh, population for population, Ukraine has a a big Nazi problem if they forgot about that, um, especially in their and their armed forces who are who are gung ho against uh, uh, Russians. Um, but but yes, um, I, I absolutely agree with what Scott was getting at there. Um, and there are major cultural value differences, um, which I'll dissect here in, in, in a second um, between, you know, the West and Russia. But on Russia's kind of role in, in, in U.S. Uh, foreign policy rhetoric among the establishment figures, that's true. Look at how old the average U.S. lawmaker is, the average person running U.S. foreign policy and leadership around the world. They're old. They're products of the Cold War at this point, mostly late Cold War era, right? So they saw firsthand this is uh, the success of having a Soviet Russian boogeyman out there um, if the going gets rough, right? It's a pretty consistent boogeyman out there, especially for people who China doesn't stick, you know, Russia might stick, right? So the more boogeyman you can get out there, the more, uh, you know, the more scapegoats you have at any given moment to uh, dissatisfy different portions of the population. And it's no mystery that the Biden administration is remarkably, historically, even unpopular right now. And so, of course, turning to uh, to the prospect of war is, you know, high risk, high reward, right? You, you really might get a surge in the polls, but you might lead people into another war. And uh, that that typically doesn't go too well, um, especially it would seem right now. He doesn't have the internal political capital to try and go wage a foreign war. That's for sure. Um, but on the on the cultural differences between Russia and the West, it is significant. The West is at least in its current iteration, very much a product of the enlightenment of Western liberal democratic values. And those have borne many, many, many great fruit for the world. I, I'm the first to profess, you know, the wonders that many of those enlightenment values and innovations have brought to the world. However, it's not something that's entirely compatible with every other part of the world. And it's not a system necessarily that's sustainable too, right? You know, the enlightenment is what led us to modernity. Uh, modernity, you know, once again, for all it's accomplished, has also wrought major problems in the world. Uh, and that's kind of what we're trying to sort out now in this current metamodern era, right? Um, and we can link this to geopolitics as well, but I'll, I'll refrain. Um, in Russia, what I found among people who were like international af uh, affairs, globally minded people, 
was that Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations idea was very, very prominent. You know, you could find his books on pretty much any Russian bookstore uh, shelf that had a nonfiction section. And the, that idea, for those who may be unfamiliar of this Clash of Civilizations idea, is that people like Francis Fukuyama, who said that after the Soviet collapse, the world had kind of reached an end of history where neoliberal democracy was the only system of government for all intents and purposes that would um, be progressing and developing from here on out. Clash of Civilizations challenged that and said, no, there are still distinct cultures and civilizations in the world that are still clashing based on maybe not necessarily political ideology, um, but civilizational tenets and values that run deeper than the manifestation of you know one single political party or national political entity and one really interesting way to look at a difference between russia and especially um you know western europe that, that atlantic sphere is looking at like a heartland land-based culture and a a sea-based you know oceanic culture and in this line of, of theorizing and reasoning, um, countries like Russia and historically Germany as well were heartland powers, right? They were uh, people rooted in virtues and values such as honor, of, of warrior spirit, of unity and discipline, things that are often considered relatively militaristic, relatively um, conservative, and things that and the Enlightenment Western view are outdated and somewhat barbaric. Whereas in sea-based oceanic cultures, um, trade, the free movement and flow of people, individualism, creativity are held as more central core tenant values. And of course, you can see where those sets of values at certain points clash significantly. And so when we talk about the encroachment of NATO and the Western sphere towards Russia, you can also view it as a broader civilizational encroachment of this Atlantic sea power sphere into the heartland of, of Russia, of Europe and the European continent. And on my personal experience in Russia, one thing that is very fascinating is how we think about geography and continents. You know, geopolitics is inseparable from geography. When I would ask my students at the time, you know, how many continents are there? I thought it was an obvious answer. I thought they would say there were seven continents, you know, North America, South America, Europe, Asia, Australia, you know, Antarctica, you know, whatever one I, did, I missed in there. But they consider Eurasia a continent. They consider Europe and Asia, much like I think National Geographic technically does, a single continent. And they view themselves as the regional powerhouse of the Eurasian continent. You know, people often associate the double-headed eagle with Slavic culture, you know, like the old Russian and, you know, Slavic flags. And the reason that it's a double-headed eagle symbolically is they took it from Byzantium, if I recall. It's because the two heads are looking east and west, respectively. You know, they're at the central location of the world's largest singular landmass, continent of Eurasia. And they span from the Baltic Sea there all the way to the Pacific and... There's also a line of thinking not so popular that Russia is sort of the inheritor of a third Rome, where you had Rome, you had um, Constantinople, Constantinople, and now you have Moscow as kind of this center of Christian civilization. And so um, for those who may not be familiar, Russians are Eastern Orthodox, which is distinctly separate from Catholicism and Protestants. And uh, it's... It's also very much tied to national identity. You know, there's a Russian Orthodox Church, there's a Ukrainian Orthodox Church. There is um, distinct entities tied to the political foundation in which that church is operating and existing. 
and Russia symbolically, to kind of get into some deep Russia-Ukraine lore here, um, Russia symbolically was established by uh, Vladimir the Great, right? He Christianized Russia, and I think it's, uh, forgive me professors if I'm wrong, like 988, and he Christianized the, the Rus, the Russian people at the time. But he did so in what is now modern-day Ukraine. So the founding of the Rus, of the Russian people, actually happened on what is now geographically Ukraine. Right. The Kievan Rus were kind of the founding group of Russian civilization and culture. And the Kievan Rus, as the name would indicate, were based in and around the area of Kiev in modern day Ukraine. And so when people ask, well, what might be some deeper reasons symbolically that Russia would want to, to have possession of this territory? It could be because it's symbolically very linked to the founding, the heart of the Russian nation and people as a civilization. You know, they were founded right there in what's now Ukraine. Now, Ukraine, etymologically, just as a fun fact, means borderlands, essentially, like Ukraine, it's like a cry is like a region, like U kind of suggests like on the on the outskirts. And so like uh, Ukraine is literally the borderlands, right? It's where the Russian, you know, kind of that Asian landmass merges with the, the European continent. So to me, it is so symbolically rich as well that this big standoff happens at what is literally the borderlands um, between the East and the West, between kind of the, the sea and the land, right? And I don't think this is actually what the Ukrainian stand color, the Ukrainian flag colors stand for, but having like blue and yellow, like the, the wheat land and like the blue water, like to me symbolically is kind of a kind of interesting too. Um, but yes, there was a lot of information to uh, to throw at you and let you take it where we will. Well, I'm I'm wondering from that what the people in in Russia really think because I I read somewhere today that um I think it was at antiwar.com that there's actually a pretty strong anti-war movement in Russia in a in a pretty loud voice there. Um, are and you said that pay, that Putin is um kind of like his interests are order and stability. Is there any sense that it is kind of imperial too that they do want to expand and um, would they would they actually like to have Ukraine? <laughs> yeah, I, I always struggle to uh, to want to speak on behalf of the Russian people, right? I always, I've always, despite you know having spent years and years studying it as a subject matter expert, as someone who is not myself, you know, Russian national or anything, I always do feel a little strange trying to read into their minds. Um, so, so take everything I say here with a grain of salt, and certainly feel if you are yourself personally a Russian and would like to give your opinion, uh, you know, do so in the in the comments or chat or whatever. But um, no one wants a war, right? War is not really popular anywhere. And in Russia, they have mandatory military conscription for the vast, vast majority of young men, which is something that we haven't had in quite some time and was, you know, for good reason, very unpopular in the U.S. And so Russia has a massive, massive reserve force because they do their, you know, year or two of service uh, conscripted in the Russian military, um, particularly if, they, if they're not pursuing a higher education, if they're not going to, to get an undergraduate, a master's and a doctor, they will almost always at some point, bar health conditions be conscripted in. And then they're placed, um, as I understand it, largely on reserve duty after that. So what would it mean to go to war with Russia? It'd be to go to war with a massive amount of, of the Russian population, which is already having demographic troubles, right? So there's, there's a great point to be made that if Putin's priority is stability and order and prosperity for the Russian people, 
war is not the uh, not the option. It's not the answer um, because war is, is costly in so many ways, um, especially as a country that is trying to to still rebuild uh, somewhat from the ashes of what could be considered its its peak former glory. I think this year, for the first time since the USSR, they were actually a net agricultural exporter, uh, which is kind of an, just an interesting factoid to throw in there. So. Broadly speaking, I think the Russian and Ukrainian people don't want war, which is why we see Ukrainians telling the West, calm down, calm down. You know, we're, I hate to say, you know, once again, from their perspective, they might be used to getting bullied and provoked by the Russians with buildups and troop movements, but they're kind of used to it. Once again, this is a, a regular occurrence, although this is the largest of the occurrences we've seen. And so they don't want panic. They don't want to inflame, incite war more than it's already being inflamed and incited, right? They almost got that that judo mindset down of we don't want to bite for the faint. We don't want to like overreact here, right? Um, and I don't want war. They don't want war. Um, and so that's the unifying factor in all of us at the end of the day is we can only hope that the leaders making all these decisions are, all, are on the same boat. Um, as for like imperial ambitions, to answer that specifically, I don't particularly see it that way. There are people who compare like, oh, the reason people are fine with Putin is because like Russians really just desire a tsar deep down in their hearts, and like that's fun to joke about. But I don't, I don't know if there's actually truth in that. Although I am a big fan of the Russians saying pravdi," and every joke is a dollop of truth. Um, so there might be something to that. But for reconstituting a, a Russian empire, you know, from like Warsaw, Poland, all the way, you know, east of Vladivostok, I don't see it as a genuine ambition. There are people who look to to relatively fringe uh, thinkers as evidence of like Russia wants to retake all of Ukraine, all of Belarus, all of the Baltics, you know, all of the Central Asian states. And like even if the even if the desire is there, the logistics are just simply not like it's not feasible, at least as as the world order and Russia currently uh, stands. So, yeah, you you had mentioned earlier about the um, the kind of I guess nationalistic force in in Ukraine that has ties to Nazi Nazism, um, and and we've had very interesting conversations about that and and why those roots are there um, at, as a response to the USSR. Um, and, and what's interesting, and to kind of tie this with a conversation we might get into a little later, is how in another universe, like you could totally see the US media being opposed to war and writing the headline that Biden is backing Nazis in Ukraine. Like, like that is something that could absolutely happen. It's the same thing that could happen in Syria where um, the media could be reporting that, you know, we, we are backing Al Qaeda in Syria and in Yemen. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of wondering if you can just talk about that situation in Ukraine and then um, maybe tie that into the conversation that we're going to get into about the media. Yeah, for sure. Um, so for those who might be um, curious about what Liam was referencing there and kind of the history of Nazism in Ukraine, um, because that is it is interesting, right? You wouldn't think necessarily that the Slavic country, you know, this country of people who would presumably on the surface be considered like subhumans by the Nazi party. Why would there be so many Ukrainian Nazis, both in World War II and nowadays? Um, and just to briefly touch on that topic, um, it was a response largely to the oppression of the USSR there um, in the 1930s and the earlier Soviet days, um, the Holodomor and the like, where 
in many senses, when Nazi soldiers arrived, they were considered saviors from the USSR. They were treated better on average in some scenarios. And of course, this is highly, highly group dependent. So always got to caveat that. But there was a certain level of the Ukrainian population that saw the Nazis as a liberating force as opposed to an invading one, solely given how awfully they were treated under uh, Soviet authorities. now, I like to pay your taxes, Al-Qaeda and Ukrainian Nazis need it. Yeah. So how do they last to this day? Well, that that affinity for Nazism and that link kind of as an anti-Soviet sentiment um, lingered throughout Ukrainian history. And when it came time to form an independent Ukraine as the USSR crumbled, what better way to kind of stick it to the crumbling Soviet authorities than to take on uh, Nazi imagery, Nazi symbolism, Nazi ideology. And so th- there are interesting um, arguments out there that a lot of this um, Ukrainian and even Russian use of Nazi imagery nowadays is much less linked to the actual ideological affiliations of national socialism and more as as the the shock factor, the um, the what it represents against as opposed necessarily like what it's for. Although there, there are certainly those uh, in Ukrainian neo-Nazi groups who are actual devout ideological neo-Nazis. Um, and, and of course, they're, they're a minority in the Ukrainian fighting force, I'm sure. It's not like I'm saying like every other Ukrainian soldier out there is a neo-Nazi. No, they're pretty clear elements, but they're ones that are also um, broadly uh, foreign welcoming, welcoming of foreign fighters. We've actually seen uh, reports in recent days that for like the um, like a Georgian battalion and then some of the other Ukrainian like paramilitary groups that are associated and attached to the official Ukrainian military. Um, Western fighters from from Europe, from the Caucasus, from the U.S., um, are apparently applying in relatively record numbers to go and try and fight privately in the Ukraine. And it's hard to see how elements like that don't just further exacerbate the tensions and, and the situation there between Russia and Ukraine. And there's a you're right to say there's a very real timeline in which the Biden administration is getting criticized for like they were sending um, money in the Middle East to to groups with terrorist associations, sending money and weapons now um, that could very well end up in the hands of neo-Nazis that are as or more actual Nazi-ish than than most of the ones the left points to here um, in the United States. And it's... um, I will I will give Ukraine uh, credit here, and well, rather I will give Russia their slight, and that Russia also did have somewhat of a like Nazi imagery problem post Soviet fall. This links to like that rebelling against the Soviet authorities. You had like the Nazbol movement, right? And a lot of that wasn't people necessarily um, adopting Nazi uh, ideology because they believed it as like an actual tenet and a value, but because they really like sticking it to Soviet authorities uh, by pretending to be. This is something. Another one of these like these couple things that I wish the West more broadly and deeply understood about Russia, right? We've covered like um, the um, the issues with like the 1990s and understanding like the, you know Putin's rise and where they are now um, and their like historical roots, while also very much tied in to to all of that. Tied into all of that is a. Um, a, I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out like the right the right words to use here. Um, 
it, it seems it, it seems to me uh, let's just move on I'll, I'll come I'll circle back to it I need I need a minute to figure out how to say this but um, do you have any other questions yeah just just about the the media I think that something you pointed out was just how we the media has kind of like painted Russia to be this aggressive figure and I mean we saw like the Russia Gate scandal for years and and it amounted to nothing and and finally we we know that like it was based off of just crazy stuff that that probably never should have been pursued um and and I saw a Washington Post article actually earlier that said uh the the Russian situation or the Ukrainian situation just proves that the first impeachment over over Trump was necessary and I, I just think that your perspective, at least from from reporting on on the Russian side and, and kind of being immersed in that, um, you might have an interesting perspective as to the United States media and how, I mean, the Pentagon kind of shapes how how U.S. media reports here, um, and, and that their only sources are officials and and that they they're not actually looking for information. They're just they're just kind of parroting a lot of the things they hear and and i wonder what you think about that yeah i i will i'll certainly touch the topic of the u.s media but i figured out how to phrase what i what i wanted uh, one of the things that i wish the west really really knew um about russia was the lingering effect and cultural memory of the second world war or as they would call it the great patriotic war the reason it took me a minute to figure out how to phrase this is because i don't want to minimize necessarily u.s efforts or like the u.s connection to the second world war but i i do want to emphasize that it is a very 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 different historical experience and memory to this day for the russian and broadly the post-soviet sphere than it is uh for for the united states and the west so there's a great great video i encourage everyone to check out there i think it's called um the fallen of world war ii it's like an infographic video and it shows the death tolls of the second world war or the great patriotic war once again um in in russian and the reason it's called the great patriotic war is because it really was for them a a fight for survival as a nation and a country you know the the number of deaths sustained on the Eastern Front is absolutely inconceivable when you, when you look at how it's actually broken down, especially when compared to the fighting on the Western Front of, in Europe of World War II. Um, if, I, if I recall correctly, as many people died in the single battle of Stalingrad as died on the entire Western Front in the Second World War, just in a singular battle right there. And it was a different kind of warfare. It was a lot of the best German units were out there. You also had the active conducted Holocaust by bullets as the German troops swept through Eastern Europe and Russia. And you know, you hear stories from the siege of Leningrad, you know, like 900 plus days of being under siege, having to resort to cannibalism and, and all these other terrible things of uh, entire classes, generations of men being wiped out um, because every last bit of labor and force was put into that war effort by the Soviet Union in the Second World War. And that's something that is kind of a sore spot in many regards when especially the U.S., pushes this narrative that it won the Second World War uh, against, you know, Nazism, that it was, you know, the defeating, crushing blow that was really needed to, you know, you know, stop the spread of tyranny in Europe. And that, I mean, you, you, you tell that to a Russian and they'll laugh in your face because uh, they're right that the, the man for man bloodshed toll put into winning that war 
is just it's not comparable the us and the russian sides on that um and and so when it comes to the memory tying it back to what we're talking about that memory of nazism and why it's arguably more of a sore spot there than it is here in some regards it's because you know here you hear the odd war here the odd war story of someone who was killed or fought the nazis there you can't not know someone personally connected to you in those generations uh, because everyone was personally involved in, in that war effort. And so the Russian people also know war very well. The Ukrainian people, the Belarusian people, they all know bloody, bloody, bloody conflict very, very, very well. Um, not to say that the U.S., especially in more recent generations, hasn't. But um, I think that's something that does dissuade in some senses, large-scale fighting and combat um, in those countries, um, and also makes Nazi um, presence in Ukraine all the more inflammatory for the Russians. Because it's illegal, by the way. For those who are curious about like free speech differences, like you can openly hang a swastika, put it on a book here and stuff. In Russia, that's like a criminal offense. I mean, flying Nazi symbols, propaganda, you know, handing out copies of Mein Kampf. That's that's criminally punishable offenses in, in Russia because it's it's taken. Uh, so seriously, like there was the whole controversy about the um, the mouse book recently being removed from like a school curriculum or whatever, and it's it's funny it, the book was removed in Russia not for any content, but because it had a, a big swastika on the cover, and they're they're you know that serious um, about trying to to counter modern day Nazi influences in their country. So it's it's interesting that you know if we're getting a bunch of like. U.S. gung-ho neocon nationalists going to fight with neo-Nazis on the Ukrainian side, I would expect for ideological consistency Antifa to go and side with the Russians against them. But something tells me that they uh, they won't don that color red. There's an interesting point there that like kind of like the, the rules-based liberal order would be – they would kind of celebrate – Germany when when they kind of outlawed all the Nazi symbolism and everything like that but but they're so opposed to Russia from this kind of liberal perspective and that's something you know ideologically why Russia's also so threatening to the west and the current world order in their eyes is because out of modernity we saw you know three main political theories emerge you know we had liberalism we had fascism and we had socialism communism and the three battled it out for much of the 20th century nazism albeit the most short-lived of them and at the end after the post you know after the soviets fell and after the chinese kind of revamped their their form of communism you were left in post-liberalism right communism and socialism was gone and defeated fascism was long defeated and we're left with liberalism right and that's where we kind of had this end of history perspective. And the reason why Russia and China as well is rather dangerous ideologically and civilizationally is because they're the first countries pitching what might be like a fourth political theory, a fourth angle outside of liberalism, communism, fascism proper that we know of. So that's where you know China calls it uh, communism with Chinese characteristics, right? Where they've taken communism and essentially it's not, it's not even true Marxism, communism at this point. It's, it's a distinct 21st century authoritarianism hybrid, right? And Russia, not exactly in the same boat, but similarly is developing a socially conservative, um, you know, but still economically somewhat of a, of a welfare state. You know, they have a pretty broad social support and the like, um, or a fair degree of like nationalized industry or whatever. You know, they're 
they're not strictly liberal. You know, they're not a liberal democracy. They're certainly not communist. They're certainly not fascist. They're like China, some blend of distinct elements that matches the Russian people, right? So, so Putinism, um, you know, modern day, you know, Russian political thinking is distinctly different from that post-liberalism uh, that the U.S. and the Western sphere, at least the establishment, would like to see uh, dominate the entire global system, right? So in that sense, civilizationally and ideologically, Russia uh, and China are our enemies. Um, and that's what scares our media so much, right? And our, our, our government and these people who have been in power for decades is once that system of post-liberalism, of U.S. global dominance ends, so too does much of their authority, their popularity, their power, the things they've been striving for for years, right? You know, if they've, you know, you had, you know, you know, rest in peace, John McCain, uh, but if he were still around nowadays, right? And then we were sitting here pitching an end to the US like global order, he'd be having a conniption because he spent decades trying to establish exactly that, right? Like, what was the point of, of the US beating the USSR in the Cold War and coming out on top? If we don't get to have our own like thousand year Pax Americana Reich, right? It's it's it'd be ludicrous to the neocon, but once again, being beholden not to the promises of some war hawk decades ago, but to future, you know, the, the children and grandchildren I hope to have plenty. I don't want that sort of foreign policy because it would be my children, grandchildren trying to maintain unsuccessfully uh, a U.S. led global order. I don't want my my kids being you know sent out as foreign expeditionary forces to uh, to the rubbled remnants of Ukraine to try and keep a democracy in the ruins. Because you know if we were in Afghanistan for you know decades, if we were bogged down in Iraq, if Vietnam was any track record, can you imagine the the length that we would have to stay to resolve an actual major conflict, um, the likes that could possibly emerge between Ukraine and Russia? It would be incompetence, especially looking at our uh, the current state of our military, right? Technologically, to hit this point, for those who may be like military industrial complex side of things, like Russia's threatening because they're relatively advanced in hypersonics. Um, hypersonic missile and, and you know weapon delivery technology is a pretty hot issue right now because it, it could largely nullify existing defense systems. It makes responding to first strikes uh, much, much more difficult. It's just generally worrying to have countries you aren't aligned with getting hypersonic weaponry and technology um, fully operational before before you do. So Russia is a concern in that sense. Um, you know, they're they're rapidly developing, you know, medium short range missile systems. You know, their tanks, their armored units and stuff are, are relatively cutting edge. Um, I'm not like a, a military hardware nerd to know enough about like how much better is a U.S. tank than a Russian tank, you know, armored personnel carriers between the two. Like, I'm not familiar with that stuff, but safe to say Russia is, the term used in the U.S. military establishment is near-peer competitor. Russia and China can be considered in the realm of the military near-peer competitors, meaning we're not going to call them equals. We're not going to say they're like peers, but they're like as close as any country could really come. Um, yeah. I, I, w- I was thinking, you, you mentioned something earlier about how, I'm not really sure how to ask this question. I guess there, there's kind of like this concern with with our foreign policy that we are actually doing something very counterproductive to our interests and that we're we're pushing away Russia. We are actually creating a situation where they are independent and and we are creating um, a situation where we're no longer a unipolar world um, because we've talked about this before um, personally, just how 
Russia is kind of in a situation where they have safeguarded themselves with Iran and and China um, financially to like kind of secure themselves from sanctions. Um, I, I wonder if you, I wonder if you have anything else to talk about that, and and if you can yeah. kind of tell the listener about what's what's going on there. Yes. Yeah, so um, both potentially preemptive sanctions and um, sanctions that would be implemented should Russia actually launch an invasion of Ukraine have been considered by the Biden administration, by the U.S. Congress. And they have promised that they would hit much harder than they would in 2014 um, after after Russia took possession of the Crimean Peninsula. And, you know, that is to say that apparently that means they held back then, um, which they didn't seem to be saying they were holding holding back back then, but apparently they did. Um, and now they're saying this would be pretty much the most devastating round of sanctions that the U.S., NATO, Western partners could jointly apply. However, um, if they were to disconnect them, as they've kind of pitched before, I think they kind of backtracked on this, but disconnect them, for example, from like global payment systems for global finance, right? All that does is give further incentive for players like Russia and China to develop alternative global financial systems, ones that aren't linked necessarily to the U.S. dollar, to U.S. markets, to U.S. uh, financial supremacy going on. And so the more that you say as a threat, we'll disconnect Russia from the world's global finance system, the more incentive there is just to start constructing a new one. You know, so... Presumably, Russia would have known now for for years and years that should they try anything, sanctions would probably be the West's first and most major response to our military engagement themselves. And so they've been taking steps to make their economy not necessarily dependent or as dependent as some others on this current global trade system, um, this, this global trade and finance network. And so while I'm, I'm confident that the U.S. and its partners and allies aren't lying when they say that the sanctions would, would really deeply impact the Russian economy, especially the Russian elites, um, they've also conceded it would, it would harm the average Russian citizen um, uh, as well. And that's just kind of the, the world of sanctions in many regards. But it's kind of so you, you can see it coming from so far away. It's not like Russia hasn't, if they really were going to pull the trigger, braced themselves in a number of senses. Now, to pitch kind of a wild conspiracy take on this whole Russia-Ukraine thing and how it might tie to, like, China, is um, it could just be a giant maneuver. Granted, a very costly maneuver if they're moving 100K-plus troops around just for this, but to take diplomatic attention and pressure off of China while they hold the, the, the upcoming Winter Olympics, right? So we're holding a Winter Olympics in China. China was getting pretty hot there foreign policy-wise because of all the shit in the South China Sea, right? Um, and then with the Uyghurs and everything else, human rights abuses, Hong Kong, like especially holding the Olympics, they were going to be getting ramped up rhetoric from the West against them because the spotlight's on them while we're holding the Olympic kind of, you know, um, this positive and a negative with hosting an event like that. And so kind of the wild theorizing is Russia doing this whole thing to like take pressure off China uh, so they can hold their Olympics and this whole thing will kind of like die down before then. Um, and then they can kind of like, you know, smear egg in the face of the West, like, haha, look like you overreacted, like, look at you, like, gonna keep the troops there now, pull them back, like, you know, um, 
And then in turn, kind of what they would get out of that, because the obvious question is, well, then what, you know, what is Russia getting out of this whole deal other than having to spend a bunch of resources moving troops? Is that then should they actually um, have to engage in any sort of conflict or should they have territorial ambitions to to take parts of Ukraine that China would presumably back them 100 percent at the UN Security Council and the like, um, you know, wouldn't wouldn't piggyback on them with the West? Because right now, the, the China, you know, the the dragon bear relationship between Russia and China is very interesting because on one hand, the enemy of an enemy is a friend and they're both competing with the West, the US-led uh, Atlanticist sphere. On the other, you know, if if they're no longer around, then they're kind of having to compete with one another, right? In Russia and China actually have a deeper history of conflict than a lot of people realize. You know, the, the Soviets, as the tale goes, came to us um, in the Cold War and essentially asked what a response would be if they just nuked the Chinese because they were pissed about the Chinese like encroaching there in eastern Russia and like the Usuri River and stuff. Um, and Chinese demographically are like kind of flooding these border cities um, there in uh, Far East Russia with Chinese ethnic populations. Um, and so there is like kind of growing tensions in a way between Russia and China and like unless we're actually totally committing to a multipolar world order where we just mind our spheres, like we're going to butt heads at some point, especially in far East Russia. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't say like, I wouldn't paint a picture like may exist in some people's mind that like China and Russia are these like steadfast best friends who are going to take on the U S and the West. Like, no, they definitely have separate and unique interests that will at some points, butt heads, uh, but certainly they are willing to cooperate to a greater degree than the U S and the West would like purely to get at the U.S. and the West. And I think I, I recall an article from a while ago where, where Russia actually stopped holding U.S. dollars and they seem to be investing in gold. Do you know anything about that? I don't. I, I admittedly don't follow global finance and trade. Like um, those systems are kind of one of those areas where it's it's so nitty gritty for me. Like that's where like reading about sanctions and stuff. Even like I I really have to make an effort of it because it's not my forte. Um, but I, I do recall vaguely having mm -hmm. having heard you mention it that they were doing something the like. And that is just um, you know once again if accurate evidence of Russia taking kind of over time steps to distance themselves from these systems that would be used to sanction them right it's almost like um like taking away like toys of a kid as punishment right and they're like what if i just don't have toys okay you know like what are you going to do then kind of thing um so i will give i will give vladimir putin credit um as as someone who is a tactician for better or worse he uh he's certainly not doing things arbitrarily yeah, so I have another question about um, kind of so so I'm I'm wondering if you know anything about like the INF treaty and what's going on right now because I know one of the big concerns in Ukraine is the movement of like missile launchers that uh, the U.S. paints as being defensive but are actually capable of being offensive as well and and actually being missile launchers. So do do you know anything about that? Yes. Yeah, so. Let's, uh, let's take this kind of more broadly and then narrow it down into here. Warfare, especially modern warfare, but really the entire history of humanity, has been trying to hit targets from further and further away or faster and faster from a closer distance um, to maximize damage that you can do while not taking any of your own, right? So that being said, the, the goal 
um, for U.S. strategists if they want to win any number of war game scenarios is to have as many armaments as close to potential targets as possible. That's why we, you know, went out of our way to try and place missiles in Turkey and try and place them in Central and Eastern Europe where we get the chance. Because if it ever comes to blows, we want to be able to strike both very fast and very quickly from close zones. And also conversely with things like, you know, ICBMs, we want to be able to strike from far away should those immediate close forces uh, not work, not be substantial, be taken out or whatever. So yes, as we talk about what does, what do we really mean? I guess this is a good point. What do we mean when we talk about NATO expansion and NATO encroachment on Russian borders? We're talking about NATO troops, NATO missiles, NATO planes, NATO bombers, NATO everything closer and closer to Russia's borders, meaning the implication, the important part, being that they are then in a better position both to respond to attacks and launch one of their own. Conversely, what does a, uh, increased Russian presence in Ukraine, let's say Russia were to take Ukraine, like the entirety of it, not just like up to Kiev and the Dnieper River or whatever, but like the whole thing, that would mean you now have Russian, Russian forces, Russian-controlled military infrastructure on NATO's borders, which would then worry them, right? So in a way right now, Ukraine is that borderlands buffer zone. It's like right now the West is trying to get their armaments, their sides in there as quickly as possible. And Russia's trying to keep theirs out and possibly get their own in there, right? It's all about where can you place the the pieces on the game board, right? And and once again, I, I would love a world where no one's moving troops up to these borders, where we, we really do try and settle these things as best possible um, without the use of armed conflict. But of course, states being monopolies on violence are always willing and loving to flex those monopolies on violence and, and just assert their control wherever they can, right? And that's, that's where the hypocrisy of every one of these interstate conflicts gets to me, right? We pointed out before, like, Russia is getting criticized for escalating the situation and moving troops. Um, and then the West is criticizing them and doing the exact same thing. Russia conversely, you know, vice versa, works the same. Russia is criticizing the West for doing it and doing it themselves. Instead of just maybe asking ourselves, how could we best sit down to resolve this? Maybe is there a creative way or can this only be settled by violent conflict and bloodshed. And this is the point in kind of like the, the half joking, like can we solve diplomatic issues through MMA fights article was getting at, is it's like, it so unfortunately seems as though some conflicts, some border disputes, territorial disputes, governmental disputes, simply aren't gonna be solved by sitting down and talking for whatever reason. Like there just seems to be some of these scenarios where whether it be because of years of historical, cultural pent up aggression and hatred, or just because like, for whatever reason, heads are heated, like they, diplomacy doesn't work. Diplomacy breaks down and fail. And as far as we know right now, the only other option is full-blown armed conflict. What I'm kind of proposing there is, what if there were a middle ground, right? Like what if, what if we could come to blows, but in a very organized way? Like I hate to compare it to like old, like colonial, like we line up our little armies and like do the maneuverings and it's very formal and gentlemanly because of course that's still bloody. But like, is there a way to settle disputes that are very heated that diplomacy doesn't work for that isn't full-blown warfare? And that's where I kind of suggest, well, maybe we could have a, each country sends a representative and we literally fight it out like 1v1 winner takes all. Maybe we, maybe we do like line up lines of troops and like headgear and boxing gloves and like have battlefield referees as two armies like hand-to-hand -hand clash with one another, right? Like, is there ways we could have like 
creative problem solving violence, right? Just throwing it out there. This is like all theoretical spitballing, but I think it's an actual important theoretical line to go down because situations like this highlight where diplomacy breaks down because tensions are so high, like the stakes because of the way the game has been played in past decades by these by these actors, like it's just, it's messy and it's complex. And sometimes to solve something messy and complex, we need to have a messy and complex solution. And by that, I don't mean war, um, but something, some gray zone in between peace and war. I don't know. It's in times like these, I think diplomats need to think creatively. And I'm not saying that that's the solution, but like, to just pretend as though the status quo is sustainable in many of these situations, like Taiwan and China looping back to that. Do I think 200 years from now, like we can still just be in this tense standoff? Like, no, like something kind of is bound to snap at some point. That's kind of the nature of history is like tensions rise, they build, they boil, they boil over. And then like, you're back to an empty pot of peace. Right. And maybe if we could just have like a vent valve now and again, like a, the best vent valve we can, like we'd be getting somewhere in these situations. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't know the answer, but like we need to start thinking creatively because clearly sitting here and sending passive aggressive statements back and forth at press conferences, like isn't working. Like the, I listen to press conferences from both sides. And at some point you just go like, you've been saying the same talking points from all these officials back and forth for like literally months now, like literally months of saying the same thing back and forth. And it's like, just kiss or hate fuck or whatever already, right? Because like, like clearly there's tension and like it's not going away. Um, and like, you're not willing to talk this out for whatever reason. So like find a solution other than like passive aggressive bitchiness while you build up your armies. That, that's that's like, that's my uh, pent up reporter rage right now with this whole situation. Only because I'm tired of hearing the same talking points over and over and over again from officials. And what's sad is they don't, they don't, they don't take questions that might be genuine because they're scared to have to answer them, right? So when you were asking earlier about like, isn't there a contradiction between the US asking Russia to de-escalate and sending their own forces to Europe? That is literally a question I was prepared to ask the Pentagon, but we were not called on, right? Like because we are a known outlet that could ask questions that are counter to the public relation informational complexes view of things, it might be challenging and difficult for them to give an answer that doesn't come across as hokey. Like, that's not my problem. That's your problem for having a foreign policy that can't be cleanly justified and backed up by the spokespeople that are supposed to be so legendary at it. We saw a great instance today um, of, of a great AP reporter questioning State Department spokesperson Ned Price on these allegations that Russia is going to do a false flag attack in Ukraine as like a pretext for invasion, right? He was asking, okay, I get that like you're this is declassified info, but like, what's the info? What's the evidence? You know, are there photos? Is this like, did an insider leak this to you? You know, was this straight up like classic espionage spy stuff? Like, how'd you get this info? What is the actual info? But all they're willing to say is it's info because we're telling you it is. That's literally the State Department's answer when you ask them, like, what's the evidence of like a Russian false flag pending? They say the evidence is that we told you there's evidence. If you don't like the process, like get out. And it's so... It's so frustrating to see because if there's genuine evidence, that's significant stuff. And I would love to see because that that changes so much about the situation, but they're not going to share it with us. Right. And they admonish reporters who 
dare bring up that their track record as a U.S. government isn't perfect on giving the public information about war-worthy causes. Dare I bring up the mention of WMDs or no, Kabul's not going to fall in like a week. Like they have a history of bad intelligence, but they don't want to take these questions and seriously grapple with these concerns from the public, from the media themselves, about the own narratives that are being constructed about the war and the pretexts behind it. And it's 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 frustrating. It's something that I wish could be changed, but it's such a ingrained, embedded narrative in all the institutions. And it's, it's hard to overcome and ask genuine questions. Um, and so I applaud those who, who, are, who are able to, who um, have the channels to power to maybe get a response. But unfortunately, a lot of the times, you're simply stonewalled. You're not going to be given an answer to the questions that you really, really have, right? Um, and that's 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 sad to me. Like our media can do better. You know, I like the criticisms of um, repression of the press around the world that the U.S. constantly levies on other powers, and they themselves are are stonewalling the press when they bring up legitimate concerns about the information they are being told and and wanting to get something more concrete before they themselves start writing articles. Um, hyping up a war, a foreign war in the Ukraine, right? In Ukraine. I really, I, I make fun of people who like have like gotten the habit from like the Cold War era of like all these old politicians calling it the Ukraine. Um, and I heard that today, by the way, there was a House representative who straight up said the Ukraine four times while unironically talking about his like loving support for the country. And that's, I guess it's kind of the point of why I wanted to come on this podcast is there's all these areas where people are suddenly trying to become subject matter experts on Russia and Ukraine overnight. And there's just so much to know, so much that I don't know. And I think people need to be doing these deep cultural, historic foreign policy dives into these specific areas of the world before we start talking about war there. Um, because war is an awful, awful, awful thing. And especially in the modern day, you know, we we haven't had a conflict as major as one um, that would be likely to stem from actual U.S. involvement in, in Ukraine. So um, that's also part of why I sometimes get so passionate about it, right, is I, I really do love peace and I love the prospect of a diplomatic, loving world order, uh, you know, a world order that's able to exist and accept each other as we are, as whatever nation state configurations we take on to be. But it's um, sometimes humans have to duke it out. And um, I only hope that we do our best to avoid it when we can. And that if it does come to blows, we find ways to resolve it quickly. And um, Overall, though, I'm optimistic that's not going to be the case. If someone asked me right now, and this might age like milk literally overnight, who knows? But if you ask me to give my assessment, um, we're not going to war anytime soon. This is a lot of posturing. This is a lot of rhetoric. This is a lot of um, squaring up, you know, like kind of like a dick measuring contest right now. But like, how often do, the, do those result in brawls? Frankly, not very often. Um, Russia's bluffed before. We've responded to their bluffs before, and they did just turn out to be nothing more than that. Uh, this could be different. Once again, that could age like milk as they're like launching an invasion right now that I'm just like not aware of because I've been on the podcast. But um, really, honestly, from the bottom of my heart, I, I don't believe that 
war is is likely. And if it is, I think the Biden administration will bitch out. Um, they, they've been pretty clear that like Americans won't fight Russians in Ukraine, that it would only be if, if Russia went into a um, allied NATO country. But then kind of what's this been all about then, right? Um, Russia, for, for those curious, this is another interesting aspect at play. Ukraine can't join NATO so long as there's an active conflict. So when people ask, why is there this like never ending, ceaseless conflict in the eastern parts of Ukraine and the, you know, Donetsk and, and Luhansk regions, it's it's because it keeps Ukraine in a conflict that keeps it out of NATO, for one. Um, and also that itself, we didn't really touch on, is a very complex situation. Those parts of eastern Ukraine are over overwhelmingly Russian speaking, um, but they were granted to Ukraine um, when the Soviet Union broke up. Um, but Ukraine rightfully doesn't want to give them up because the Donbass, uh, the Donetsk Basin uh, that that's in, is pretty much the most energy resource rich area of Ukraine. I think it has like 80, 90 percent of Ukraine's like fossil fuel energy resources. Um, so even though they might say fair point, you know, they're they're ethnic Russian, Russian speaking, whatever they they themselves may or may not want to join them democratically. If you ask them, uh, that's going to be a point of contention. Um, but like Ukraine for re- realpolitik reasons, they can't just give up such a vital region of their country without at least some sort of struggle, right? Um, Crimea, once again, we didn't get to touch much on Crimea because once again, their their status quos, their situations where the U.S. has kind of shown it's not actually willing to put the bark or the bite behind the bark, rather, where they're now open, like at the time in 2014, they were saying these are harsh, harsh sanctions on Russia for, you know, um, you know annexing uh, the Crimea into their territory. But then now they're saying, no, those were like half-assed sanctions, and now it's going to be the real sanctions. And it's like, well, then what's to really make Russia think that you would do anything, you know, that this wouldn't isn't just all posturing on your part? And that's where really at the end of the day, as unsatisfying as it is, um, I just don't think war is likely. No one's willing to really pull that trigger because, once again, it's not in Putin's interest. The, the U.S. is right about that. And Putin's right. That's not in the U.S.'s interest to go getting themselves in a foreign war right now either. Um, could this all be like staged? Could this all be like both sides just taking our attention away from something else? Absolutely. If we want to get really conspiratorial, we can. But I think it's it's almost the simplest explanation as the truest one here. Uh, this is two geopolitical spheres clashing in their Venn diagram overlap of Ukraine, um, fighting or rather posturing for a more sustainable situation. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'm confident that the sustainability will last. Ukraine, there's a reason Ukraine doesn't think war is that likely. There's a reason why the Germans and the French aren't necessarily as uh, as war-fee versus the US. And it's because people closer to the ground, frankly, understand the situation better than whoever is advising Joe Biden on the National Security Council. And if anyone's interested more about like that aspect of, of localism and, and everything like that, I would really recommend checking out my previous podcast with Ethan because we really delve into localism and and we we touch on love and the important importance of community and, and stuff like that. Um, but but I wanted to bring up one or two more points about uh the press before we go because it is getting pretty late um so you would you would mention just kind of like how 
no one wants to ask these hard questions. And I've, I've found a similar situation just, I mean, in all, in all of these press conferences, like whether it's monetary policy or, or with the Pentagon, where there are only a selected few journalists and, and the situation there kind of creates this incentive where they're not going to ask hard questions because then they won't be invited to the room. Um, and I mean, maybe, you know, more about like the internal politics of how, uh, um, an outlet gets invited in the first place. But I just, I, I've always found that interesting. Like they, they're put in a position where, where they, they really can't ask hard questions either, or they might feel like they're, they're not able to. And then, um, you would, you would talk just about the hypocrisy of, of the media too. And something we've kind of joked about is like this, this discussion about the false flag in, in Russia doing this in, in Ukraine to go to war with Ukraine is like, so we're, we're finally going to admit that like states actually do like have false flags like that. That's the thing that happens. And we're going to admit that other countries do it, but mm-hmm. deny that we do it. Yeah, so it's, it's ludicrous. Yeah. Exactly. And that's a, I've always kind of jokingly said that, you know, I, I, I respect the KGB more than the CIA, or rather, I think the CIA is sketchier than the KGB only because, only because they're so like in denial about it. Like the KGB, it's like, oh my God, you're like, you're like elite espionage spies, like doing crazy shady shit around the world. And they're like, duh. But it's like, <laughs> yes, the CIA. And they're like, no, we're a diverse workplace focused on, you know, American excellence and, and spreading good. And, and it's like, bro, just like, I'd have a lot more respect for the CIA if they're just like, yeah, we're the CIA. What are you going to do about it? Right. Um, but that's, that's kind of besides the point there. Um, yes. Um, being a member um, of the media right now, as much as that, for those curious, I have zero background in actual journalism. I took one journalism class in my life. It was numbers as news. It was, you know, statistics um, for, for news articles and stories. I thought it was interesting. And I wound up here only because of my interest in, in global affairs and, and the Russian sphere and being able to really digest and break down what's being said by these figures around the world in a way that's really accessible. Um I really do encourage people who are like frustrated, like complaining about the news being all opinion, all like over analysis. It's not just like the facts on the news. Frankly, you need to either find a really great news wire service, um, which is going to be like break your bank. So don't do it. Um, or you just need to start reading the press statements yourself, you know, read the press releases, read the joint statements, listen to the press conferences when you get a chance, because that's the only way you're not going to get, the media spin, right? You're still getting the government spin. That's like just because something's coming from someone with, you know, senior deputy official in their title, you know, it doesn't it doesn't mean it's true, right? It just means that's the official person saying it. This is their take, right? And that's where as someone who would like to be asking questions, it's it's, it's disappointing and it's angering because we do laud ourselves about our freedom of the press and we do a remarkably good job for all intents and purposes. But there's a lot of these unspoken, unwritten rules and institutional behaviors and codes of conduct that kind of keep the, the gated institutional narrative in control. It's, it's like you said, if you start asking too controversial, too inflammatory, too tough of questions, you may very well see your credentials taken away. You may not find yourself getting the emails invited to these, to these events. And sometimes it's hard to even know to go then where to, where to find the news, right? So the U S government, this is another thing where 
they think they look so good. In their minds, they sound so sophisticated and worldly and correct when they go, we only do diplomacy behind closed doors, right? And in their mind, they're justifying it. I get it. Like, you know, world negotiations are often better when they're not just aired out to the public as dirty laundry, right? But at the same time, it's so tone deaf. It's so dissonant to what the American people want to hear, where they go, why aren't we negotiating? Like, why are you doing all this back sort of stuff? We would like to see what is going on in our government, what sort of statements, what sort of pitches the American government is putting out there, because we don't want a bad deal, right? When we're talking about these negotiations back and forth, well, why would we want someone negotiating on our behalf as our government uh, when we don't even know what the terms of the potential deal we'd be getting out of it are? And so it's always so funny to me seeing the smug look on their face when, when they go, yes, we, unlike our Russian counterparts, only do diplomacy in private. It's like, Public diplomacy sounds rhetorically so much better, and I don't think you understand that. Like, when when Russia can just like kind of put egg on your face by just saying, "Oh yeah, here's what we talked about in public." If you're not going to talk about it, we'll talk about it, right? It's it's just kind of tone deaf, right? And um, looping looping back to, to kind of how you started this as well, I do encourage for people who think I'm just like a, a foreign policy, international affairs, like that's my thing. It's actually really not. This is more like a, of a secondary personal interest that just happens to really overlap with my area of expertise. Um, I, I'm much more focused on political theory, political philosophy, um, genuine ways of human social organization, um, as opposed to just these, like, what's happening in our current status quo system, right? The reason why this area in particular is so interesting to me is because as much as it's an opportunity for great conflict and great catastrophe in the world, I also see it as a moment for great reflection and change, right? Like if we can, if we can take lessons out of this, if we can take a moment to like look back on our foreign policy of the decades and where it's led us to today and say, is this the sort of job we wanna be running? Is this the sort of ship we wanna be sailing around the, uh, the world on diplomatically? Or do we want to, do we want to reassess and maybe, maybe re-sit down with a fresh perspective and fresh mind separate from the the gerontocracy running Washington and and I don't know the statistics I I would imagine you know the average age of the Russian leadership is is probably also aligned with that Cold War era thinking so I I would like us to start thinking in the microtonalities of of politics and world affairs this is something I'm I'm very very keen on for anyone listening if you take one thing away from this whole podcast don't even let it be about Russia and Ukraine but about this it's it's Find the the micro tonalities of culture and politics and try and, and glean the wisdom from there. So like microtones, for those who may not be familiar, it's like it, it's a metaphor that I take from music where we think about music in the set Western musical scale. You know, you have the notes, you know, you know, C, C sharp, D, D sharp, you know, all the way up to so you get to C again. And it's clearly divided. But that's only because we've chosen to frame and think about it that way. There are other ways to divide the sonic signals coming out of instruments and in our voices that are between the, the notes that we have arbitrarily decided are the ones we're going to base our musical sound on. So while, while, a, you know, the, while Russia is playing a C and while a U.S. is playing a, a dissonant D, uh, or, you know, I guess rather, you know, like D flat, C sharp, realize there's a note in between there. They may not tell you, you know, every bit of sheet music may deny that there is a note there. You know, the way you've 
been told to listen and think about music may deny that there's a note there, but there is a note there that's outside of the narrative structure and the the language games that you've been given, right? So that's why I tried to, and I, I hope I did a fair job, give an assessment from a Russian perspective, from the U.S. perspective, try and dig out where these differences are. Like, what's the difference between the U.S.'s C note and Russia's, you know, C sharp? Like, because by exploring exactly what those two positions are, we can we can kind of narrow down something in between where we might be given inspiration or wisdom for a more creative balanced solution to a problem that right now seems to be either um, we let a foreign country, you know, take uh, the territory and sovereignty away from another, or we engage in full-blown warfare, um, or we just look like a fool when the whole thing ended up being essentially a giant, a giant bit of theater. Yeah. Well, hey, man, we've been going for a while and I, I yes. do think that we could talk for like another hour. I have like I do have a lot more questions. So I, I would like to bring you on just about the media and just the observations I've made while watching Jerome Powell speak and, and just like the, the situations that that it creates. Um, but yeah, I, I would also recommend people actually watch the press conferences. I've, I've learned the most when I actually listen to Jerome Powell speak um, when, when he has the FOMC meetings about, about monetary policy and the little the repetitions and these phrases that almost get like trademarked and then like the the media continues to repeat and they just are so not authentic and mm -hmm. and they seem to be kind of like you know like a mockingbird like That's the best. Mockingbird. inauthentic is the best word to describe it that is spot on yeah because it it, it has not it has not originated mm -hmm. naturally it, it just it feels like it, it's just these these very fake um just people parroting the same exact phrases over and over again to where like yeah. you hear something and you're like, I've heard that before. And I know like where that came from and you didn't come up with that. Like someone else yeah. said that and you heard it and you're just repeating the same thing. That's, that's one of the funniest parts of being a reporter is, is knowing exactly where that phrase come from, came from or listening to a, you know, Jen Psaki from the white house, Ned Price from state department, John Kirby from Pentagon in like successive hours and hearing them read word for word, the same statements and the same answers to yep. questions off their iPad or from their binder. It's yes. Like you said, a discussion all of its own. Um, so I look forward to maybe here in, in a future, couple, another couple months coming back on, seeing where the world's at, seeing uh, how this analysis aged uh, poorly or hopefully correctly. Um, but in the meanwhile, I, I'm going to do the shameless plug of telling people, follow me on Twitter at the underscore posts, posts from underground, a nice little Dostoevsky reference there um, for you for you literature fans. Um, I also have a medium under the same name, posts from underground, linked on that Twitter. Um, and listen to uh, listen to this again and again. Listen to my old episode and uh, give Liam some love. And I also have all of those links in the description if anyone wants to check them out. But thanks, man. Thank you, Liam.